What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. What's up, Dream Builder? We are back again with another episode. And in this episode right here, we're going to learn about all things around being unapologetically ambitious and courageous. So I'm excited to learn about this. I'm excited to learn from the one and only Shelly Archambo. Did I say that right? Archambo? You sure did. Archambo. That's perfect. Got it. I love it. I love it when I get it right on the first try. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming her to the show. Shelly, you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? What's up, Dream Nation? Great to be here. Great to have you. Now, I always love to start off the shows. I don't know if you've listened to one before, but I always love to start them off. And and I compare us as entrepreneurs, thought leaders, su- or change makers to superheroes. And the reason being is because we're constantly flying around the world. We're putting on our cape and we're trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems. So we all know Wonder Woman. We know Superman. But a lot of the times when we ask, who is the person behind the scenes? So who is that Lois Lane? Who is that Clark Kent? And so my question to you is a lot of people have seen you on YouTube or the biggest platforms and and they see you as this superhero but behind the scenes when there is no cape on when there is no camera tell us who is that in your case Lois Lane <laughs> well the the Lois Lane in Shelley Archambault is a goodness uh, is a woman who likes people <laughs> I mean you know I genuinely like people uh, so therefore, I have lots of you know warm relationships. I tend to be the person that likes to you know reach out and help. I enjoy cooking and entertaining and having people in my home. Uh, I enjoy my grandchildren. I enjoy being able to just help and support others. I like to travel. So I'm pretty straightforward, pretty down to earth, and like the things that many other people do. I love it. Love it. Now, for anybody who doesn't know your background, your history, give us a little bit of background on, you know, how did you get to where you are now? Because now you're an accredited CEO, you're a business developer, you're a coach, you're uh, an inspirational leader. But take us back and tell us, like, what was your journey like growing up? Mm. Well, I think my most formative years actually happened to me in elementary school. I'm the eldest of four. My parents were crazy, absolutely crazy, Casanova. They had four children in less than five years. Well, yeah, yeah. right. Anybody who has kids, you can imagine, right? Crazy. Oh, yeah. um, so I'm the eldest. We grew up. We grew up very close, but very competitive. And when I was in first grade, we were living in Philadelphia, right in the heart of the city. My school very diverse. You know, I didn't really understand the whole black white. The whole I mean, everybody was just kids, right? Because we were all mixed up. Well, my father got a new job and we moved to a suburb of LA. And this was the 60s, which was a very racially charged time. And I was suddenly the only black girl, not just in my classroom, not just in my grade, but I think the school. And life was not good for me. I got, you know, I got abused physically, verbally by kids, by adults. I got beat up by kids in my class. I mean, it was just not good. So I learned very early that the odds for me doing anything or becoming anything were just not in my favor. So I learned that I had to do things differently if I wanted to actually improve my odds. So fast forward, I had a fateful conversation when I was 16 with my guidance counselor. You know, that obligatory conversation, what are you gonna do when you graduate from high school, going to college, right, et cetera. So, okay, I'm going to college because of my family, my father didn't have a college education, but it was all about get good grades because you're going to college so you can get a job. So that's what I told her, I'm gonna go to college so I can get a job. And she said, well, what do you want to do? 
And I said, honestly, I don't know. I just want a job where I can keep the thermostat at 72 degrees in the wintertime. I can eat out at restaurants and I can travel because these are all things that I can't do. And, you know, she said, okay. She said, so what do you like to do? And I said, oh, clubs. You know, I'm, I'm in everything. I'm in American Field Service and French Club, right? National Honor Society. I'm even a Girl Scout, but don't tell anybody. Um, I said, but, and I enjoy running them. And she said, well, you know, clubs and business are kind of the same. You pull people together and get things done. And I said, oh, all right, then I'll go into business. And since I like to run clubs, I looked around and the people who ran businesses were called CEOs. So literally at 16, I decided I'm going to go be a CEO. Now, did I have any idea what that meant? No, <laughs> right? I just knew businesses were like clubs. I like running clubs, so I'll go be a CEO. But then I spent my whole career very intentionally working on improving my odds to make that happen. And it did by the time I was 40. Huh. Now, when you were growing up around this time, let's say even the years of 13 to 17, did you have any side businesses? Were you kind of an entrepreneur at heart or was it truly brand new to you, but you just loved the thought of just being around people? So you said, I'll figure out the rest later. I was not entrepreneurial, but I was always working. I mean, I picked strawberries, right? Because um, those are jobs you can get when you're not old enough to actually get a real job. I clean stalls and, um, and, uh, barns, you know, I obviously babysat. Um, I, I had job with waitress, you know, I had jobs all the way through in terms of growing up because in my family, we all got a little bit of an allowance, but anything we wanted to do, we had to pay at least half of. And so you had to figure out how to make money. So I worked all the time, right. but I wouldn't say I was entrepreneurial. And that's probably, I didn't even think so much about entrepreneurism. So when I came out of college, my whole idea of being CEO, I was like, all right, I pick tech because I'd heard along the way that if you pick industries that are growing to be a part of, there's never enough resource. And if you're good at what you do, you can move forward faster. So I said, great, looked around, it's the early eighties, tech. Good news, it's still tech. Um, but I said tech. Yeah. And then I said, all right, who's the best company in tech? At the time was IBM. So I said, great, I'm going to join IBM and come CEO of IBM. Audacious. So there's, <laughs> there, there's so much to unpack here, and I'm very, very excited about this. So first off, what was the driving factor that you didn't give up as a young girl? Because a young girl now being moved to L.A., right, and you're the only black one, and you're being abused physically, verbally, emotionally, what was your guiding light? Was it your mom? Was it your dad? Did you get a friend that allowed you to be a part of your first club? Like what pulled you through those years where you're feeling like, listen, I don't have a place in this world and I'm just going to shut down. Yeah. Well, honestly, I, I tried to, um, you know, as, as you think about those times in those years, I definitely withdrew and I got lucky. Number one, I had strong parents. Um, and you know, the message that my mother was always trying to deliver was you can't control what people say to you and you can't control what people do to you, but you can control how you respond. So don't let them win. And her whole thing about letting them win is if they affect how you feel about yourself, then they've won. So don't let them win. All the rest is surface stuff. They don't know you. They don't know what you're capable of. They don't know what you're made of. Don't let them get in your head. They don't know you and therefore they have no right, right? To judge you. It's that whole mentality of don't let them win. And so that helped. Um, but honestly, it was a couple of teachers that also made a difference because, you know, every time I left home, I was facing the rest of the world, right? And right. I had a third grade teacher that really took, um, notice if you will and an interest in me and um and she made a big difference uh she actually it's how i got into horses of all things because she actually had a farm and she approached my mother and said do you think shelly would like to ride horses and she mm -hmm. literally here i am i think i was in third grade when all this happened um and she pulled me out and saturdays i would go mom would drive all the way out and i'd go and i'd ride on horses and suddenly I was in an environment in which I felt big, you know, I felt strong. I'm sitting on top of a horse looking at the world, right? 
being able to control. It was the first time that I started to feel a sense of power, right? And then I could do something. Um, And then the next big influence was probably my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Misrahi, and she was my math teacher. And I loved math. And she realized that I was kind of off to the side, but I was good at math. And she said, Shelly, if you finish your math first, you can help other students. Oh my gosh. All of a sudden, you know, I had a role. I would race through my math work so I could spend all the time helping others. And then I learned in helping others, I could create relationships because now they got to know me in a way that was positive, right? And that stuck with me forever. To this day, I believe the best way and the way I've always built relationships is I reach out and help people. Huh. I love it. I love it. And so that's the power of mentorship, right? When someone feels lost in this world and we all feel lost in one way or another, whether it's you're trying to learn tech or crypto or you're trying to get into real estate, it doesn't matter what it is. We're always trying to, I guess, re-energize ourselves because we've been taught one way and we, we, we find something that has a passion for us. And if we could just figure out how to build those relationships, like you said, we're probably going to get some type of mentorship from it. Or even more importantly, we can give some type of mentorship that can help someone else is what I take away from that. So that's so powerful. And I think that you you even mentioned it like my, my parents, because the reason why I love having shows like these is because it teaches us that even though we don't have all of the answers, there's people that are coming behind us, whether it's our nieces, our nephews, or someone who's just reaching out to us. And if we could just give them that little bit of encouragement, look at where it can go. Oh, right? And, and It is so true. So true, Casanova. I mean, fast forward, this whole thing about mentorship, I mean, I didn't understand that they were mentors, right? Um, in terms of at the time. But what really helped me understand the power of mentors that I have leveraged throughout my entire career was when I was early with IBM and IBM decided they wanted their high potential people to have mentors. And they asked us, who would you like your mentor to be? All right. Well, looked around. There was a guy named Roland Harris that I knew and he was a couple levels above me and I thought he liked me. So I said, all right, roll it. Well, several days later, I got a call. Shelly. Hi, Roland. Shelly, you put my name down to be your mentor. And I was like, well, yeah, Roland, I, I thought you liked me. He said, Shelly, you've got me. Go get somebody else. And I was like, what? So, you know, I learned a couple things from that interaction with Roland. Number one, this whole mentor-mentee thing, it doesn't have to be formal. I had no idea he considered himself a mentor. And number two, I could have as many as I wanted. Roland told me, go get another one. And literally, I spent the rest of my career adopting mentors all over the place. Because what I learned Mm. is no matter what job you get, no matter what problem or challenge you face, somebody else has been there or done that before. So go find them. Talk to them. Learn from them. No reason to go through and make all the same mistakes, right? Start on second base and set a home plate. I love it. I love it. There's so much from there. Now, one question that I have is, and this is a great transition and segue into it. So you said, okay, well, I'm going to go to IBM and I'm going to work for them. But this was still at a time where we know that racism, we know that biases. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is prejudice. And on top of that, you're not only black, but you're a black woman. So talk to me about how did you have that courage? How did you have that um, ambitiousness? But I guess a better word might be um, naivety to think that you could go work at one of the top tech companies and you could actually succeed there. Well, this is all about improving your odds. Remember I said I, was, I totally believed that the odds were not in my favor. So therefore I had right. to do things to improve my odds. And the way I've worked to improve my odds every step of the way, Casanova, is to plan. All right. I mean, a lot of people set goals, right? So first you have to set the goal. I want to become CEO of IBM. Then you have to make a plan to make it happen. And then you actually have to execute the plan. So the way I always think about it is, all right, what's the goal? I want to be CEO. All right. What has to be true for me to become CEO? Well, you know what? I don't know. So I've got to go do the research to figure out what has to be true. You know, I call it doing your homework. I still do homework to this day because there's so much I don't know along whatever path or thing that I'm trying to get done. So what has to be true? So I actually did the research. Well, who are they? What's their background? What kind of career paths did they have? What kind of training do they have? Where did they start their jobs, right? I looked at all that. And when I picked IBM, one of the things I saw was every single CEO at IBM started out in sales. Hmm. Now, I was graduating from Wharton. Do people from Wharton take a sales job selling computers? Answer is no. My friends thought I was crazy. Um, what do you mean, right? Just go to become an investment banker or P&G product manager or something cool, right? international financial analyst, but you're going to sell computers? Well, yeah, because I did the research. That's what everybody else did. So I figured it had to be the path to power, right? And now how mm. did I go after that job? Well, even though I was at Wharton taking business classes, I did Wharton undergrad. I took computer classes too. I took some programming classes, right? All right. How do I differentiate myself, right? And stand out. And I got part-time jobs, right? I was able to parlay it. So I got a part-time job working for IBM right? While I was in school. I mean, I did all, I was very, very intentional about what I did and how I went after it. And that's what I think makes a difference because a lot of people will set goals. You talk about dreams, right? It starts with a dream, right? Ooh, I wish, I hope, right? But the key between a dream and a goal is a target and a timeline, right? Mm. Once you put a timeline on it, now it becomes a goal. Then you ask yourself, what has to be true to achieve it? And when you understand what has to be true, then you say, now, how do I make it true for me? That becomes the plan. And once you've got the plan, you have to execute it, make decisions consistent with the plan every day, which is another thing people don't do. Some people set goals, right? Few people will make plans, but very few people make decisions every day consistent with their plan. You know, I just assume it's going to happen. doesn't always. And therefore, I make decisions assuming it's going to happen. I was, can I tell you a quick story? Yeah, absolutely. Just to drive this home of how ridiculously intentional I was. So it came from very modest means, all right? So didn't have a whole lot of money. I'm now a sophomore in college, and I need a winter coat, all right? So I go to the outlet, I buy a coat, come back, show my roommate. It's a double-breasted kind of swing coat, except this is the early 80s. In the early 80s, the style is double, you know, a button-down pea coat, very fitted, broad shoulders, right? And so she says, well, Shelly, it's a nice coat, but it's not very stylish. And I said, I know, but I wanted to be able to wear this coat when I'm pregnant. She said, Shelly, you don't even have a steady boyfriend. What are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, but I would like to be married early. That's part of my goal. I'd like to have kids early. And a good winter coat should last, what, seven, eight years? So in seven, eight years, I want to be pregnant. So I'm going to buy this coat, assuming I'm going to wear it when I'm pregnant. Make decisions consistent with your plan. And you know what? I did. I work with both my children. So do you still have the coat today? No, I mean, if I realized I was, (laughs) the answer is I should have, right? I'm so all those things. I mean, I, you know, you don't think about it when you're doing it. This is just what I do. Um, So what I will tell you is, what that does is not just you can say, oh, great, I saved money on because I had to buy a new coat. That's not the point. The point is every time I put on that coat, every time I put on that coat, 
it's just reinforcing the plan, right? It's right. just reinforcing the plan. It's live. I'm living it. So everything I did always was always consistent with my overall plan. Um, so that way, when it happened, I got lucky. Wasn't I lucky? I didn't have to buy a new coat. Right. It's law of attraction, right? You're aligning your universe up every step of the way. And, and I love it. Now, people are hearing this and, and I think it's something I'm curious about as well. It seems like things were, at least from the outside looking in, but we know that it wasn't. It seems like things were maybe um, peaches and cream. Now, you getting into IBM, like there had to be, or was there like a challenge because you're like, okay, I'm going to go for CEO. Did you become CEO or did you become a, a C-suite executive at IBM? Right. I did not become a CEO of IBM. I got to senior leadership. So here's what happened, right? So that's why I said, you set goals. They don't, they don't always happen. Although my goal was CEO, right? I picked IBM afterwards. So I spent 14 years at IBM rising through the ranks. I actually got to the point where my boss reported to Lou Gerstner, the CEO. There wasn't anybody above me that looked like me. I was running a multi-billion dollar division, right? Doing well. I mean, outside and again, I'm on track. I'm in the executive ranks. And I could have stayed at IBM and been a senior executive because what ha was happening is I was getting signs that I don't know if I'm really going to get a chance to truly compete for the CEO job, despite all that I've done. And becoming a CEO was my goal. So therefore, I had to make the really hard. I mean, I cannot tell you how hard the decision was to leave IBM because I could have stayed. It would have been so easy. Right. And I could have been a senior executive. Right. Even if I wasn't a um, CEO, it would have been a good life. Right. All that would have been fine. But that wasn't the goal. So leaving IBM was probably one of the hardest things I did in my career. But it was the right thing to do because I did become CEO. Hmm. Now, before we hop into where you became a CEO, talk, when you say signs, was it just your internal intuition signs or was it like, like what was the signs? And I asked that because there's somebody out there right now that is a dreamer and a doer, but maybe they are not a full-blown entrepreneur yet. And they are an executive and they're listening and they're watching this right now. And they're saying, well, what was the signs? Because I feel like I've gotten some signs, but I don't know if I should be moving or if I shouldn't be moving right now to go after my goal. Sure. So one was, despite the fact that I was highly rated in each of my jobs, I mean, I moved forward quickly. So I was obviously highly rated. IBM, like many large companies, they pay in pay bands, right? If you're at this level, you can get paid from this band to this band, right? This level, this range, this range. Well, what was happening is I just felt I was not being paid fairly. I was always being paid at the bottom of the band, even though my performance was at the top of the band. So that doesn't make any sense to me. And while right. I'm not a mercenary, <clears throat> I was never one of these people that took a job because it was the highest paying, right? I was very strategic on what kinds of jobs and skills I was trying to get, but I made a lot of trade-offs. My family had made a ton of trade-offs. I needed to be paid fairly. Um, and I talked about it. I asked about it, right? Periodically, I get a little thing. Oh, but Shelly, you got a big raise. I said, I don't care if I got a big raise. If the average person who's in my job is making more money than I am and I'm performing better, right? That, that doesn't make sense to me. So anyway, um, so one, I wasn't getting paid. So I thought, hmm, they really valued me. I feel like I'd be getting paid. Um, and then, you know, other little things. But the big thing that broke the camel's back, if you will, was the CEO Lou Gerstner came to, I was in Tokyo at the time, living in Tokyo, running an Asia Pacific business. And he comes to Tokyo and he has, I learned that he had a few one-on-ones with some of my peers, but not with me. All right. If I'm really right, considered that highly, I would have been one of those people. Um, and so right. those, like I said, the signs. And let me tell you, fast forward, when I left IBM, I increased my, I increased, let me, I want to make sure I get the math right here. I almost doubled my compensation. So I wasn't being paid fairly. And did these come off of relationships? Like how did you take us then into the new, the new opportunity that you got 
Like, did you now start to voice this to your other colleagues who maybe wasn't at IBM and you said, hey, you know what? I'm not being compensated fairly. I'm looking for another opportunity. Or were all along, were you being kind of poached about joining another company? Yeah, I had actually gotten calls. And yes, I was I was pretty visible. So I was actually getting calls um, about jobs and things, but I wasn't paying any attention because IBM was my career. So I started what I started doing was listening to those calls. And then, yes, I did tell a few people outside of IBM because I do believe if you need help, then you need to tell the universe because the universe doesn't know it can't help you. Uh, And what happened is the job I got coming out of IBM actually came through a prior relationship. So I got one of the one of the phone calls I got was from the CIO of Blockbuster and the CIO Blockbuster, who had been a customer of mine back when I was an IBM sales, right? Um, and he said, Hey, Shelly, are you ready? <laughs> Basically, are you ready for a real job? <laughs> um, but Blockbuster was looking for a president of blockbuster.com. They were creating a new division. This is the late 90s. So this is when everything was kind of getting started in the dot com world. And they wanted someone yeah. to kind of build this business. And with my tech background, I'd done a lot in dot com. And, you know, like I said, the guy I knew, he was referring me in. So I competed. I said, that sounds interesting. Sounds interesting because when I was looking to leave IBM back to doing my homework, I checked. And it turns out a lot of people who leave big companies and go leave. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Other companies, especially smaller ones, because I was like, hmm, I'm not going to do another big company. It's going to take too long to figure out the whole network, relationships. Let me go run a smaller company. But a lot of people stumble a time or two because it's so different. And as a black female, I don't have as many strikes at bat. So I've got to improve my odds. So I figured I'd go get a seat at the table job, which means a job that reports to the CEO, has a chance to interact with the board of directors, right? That learn to learn what is so different and then go after my CEO job so I could improve my odds of succeeding at it. So I thought this was a perfect first job to step out of IBM for in terms of learning that. Um, and so that did. So I became president of blockbuster.com. I built the first blockbuster.com website, did the first big deal with AOL. I mean, we did a lot of cool things, uh, which was great until it wasn't. Wow. <laughs> In, until it wasn't. So talk to me then about, because you've always been somebody that you, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't want to assume, but it seems like you've set whatever your goal is and you've made it a mission to hit that goal. So now with the Blockbuster situation, obviously there's one goal, but we know that Blockbuster is now no more, right? So because you were leading the company in this dot-com era, if you will, what was your mindset like in understanding that you had to transition? Because you had not been somebody, I mean, you've been how long? 14, 15 years at IBM? Yeah, I was at IBM 14 years, yeah. 14 years. So now going into Blockbuster, and now you're leading this company that has been a staple for, you know, 15, 20 years. But now you also see that everything is more innovative. Do you think that if you could have done it, do you think that you contributed um, to maybe the acceleration of it going down or would you have done things differently knowing what you know now well let me tell you so i was president of blockbuster.com i was not the ceo Mm -hmm. of all of blockbuster i reported to the ceo um and during my time there um you know first you know the first six seven months i got to know reed hastings who at that point was as many people know is the founder of of netflix at that point they Mm -hmm. were fledgling startup right and Reed and I got to know each other because they were now doing a similar thing, right? Coming out at different sides. So Reed came out to Blockbuster, pitched, let's take Blockbuster.com, you know, the brand, because I'm trying to build technology, but we had amazing brand relationships, right? All those good things. Combining with Netflix, who had technology, but no brand relationships, no content, no, right? None of that stuff. Put them together and go conquer the world. And my and boss said no. said, no. 
Were you at that? Like, were you a part of that? Were you the bridge? I was the, well, I was definitely the bridge. So, cause like I said, I had the relationship with, um, with, uh, with Reed, right. And helped in mm -hmm. terms of bring, bring all that in, but I was not in a decision making that this was a CEO decision, right? Um, so, but did he have your ear to say, were you like, Hey, I think we should do yeah, this. Like, I'm, should, I'm, yeah, absolutely. In terms of, I think we should do this. So when that didn't happen, it was like, Oh no. I think I made a big mistake here. And so literally I was only at Blockbuster and CEO for a year um, because mm -hmm. after that, it didn't make sense. I came back and it was, imagine this, my, my family, I moved my entire family from Japan to Dallas, Texas for this job. And seven months in or so, this all goes down and I'm like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. And more than that, I'm in Dallas, Texas. Not a lot of tech going on in Dallas, Texas back in the late 90s. I need to get to Silicon Valley. So imagine me having to come home and tell my husband, I kind of made a mistake. I know we just moved and everybody just got settled, but I need to get, it, I need to, get to Silicon Valley. <laughs> so wow. anyway, um, and that's in essence what I did. But I ended up leaving the family in Dallas. I commuted for three years. So there could be some stability wow. in terms of the family. And then the family moved out to Silicon Valley. Gotcha. So then what's the, so talk to me about what's the next step? What's the next journey? Because now we've had a lot of success. Then it's quickly, we had some, an opportunity that imploded. Yeah. So now how do we, how do we rebound from this? So I was like, okay, I want to get to Silicon Valley. I still need, I still want the seat at the table thing. I'm not ready to go after the CEO job. Um, I've now got in my arsenal of seals and experience, I've got tech. Um, I've got um, um, internet, but I wanted telecom because one of the things I did learn at Blockbuster was all these things are coming together, right? So I wanted some telecom experience thinking that would actually make me again. How do I improve my odds for the different types of opportunities that might be out there? So I actually got a job as the chief marketing officer and EVP of sales at North Point, which you may not remember, but it was a high-speed DSL when high-speed internet was first coming out. North Point was one of the key providers and they were, okay. they looked like they were going to be the winners. They were in the process of doing a deal with Verizon. Um, when I joined, when I joined the company, um, so I joined and my job was trying to grow their overall sales, grow the number of lines out there, reduce their cost of sale, get efficient, etc. cetera. Um, and we made a ton of strides and then ultimately the whole ISP internet service provider space kind of imploded. Right. So I got caught up in that and we ended up selling the company to AT&T. But one of the investors who sat on the board back to having board visibility, right, was Benchmark. Um, and Andy Ratcliffe from Benchmark said, Shelley, I want to introduce you to LoudCloud, the ben, the Mark Andreessen Ben Horowitz company, because they need somebody to lead them in marketing. Right. And so I said, all right. So I went and interviewed there. Sure enough, they hired me. And I became not just the chief marketing officer, but then in a couple of quarters, they also added um, the EVP of sales. So I had the same role at LoudCloud. Um, and then I did that job, helped them through their transition, because now the internet, this is back when the bubble burst, the bubble burst. We talk about getting caught up in all these headwinds. The bubble burst, right. everything crashed, right? They are losing customers faster and faster, and they hired me to help move them from startup companies as customers to big companies as customers. Um, so we went through this major transition um, and then decided they needed to basically become a software company. They were kind of a hosting managed service company, go to a software company, less financially and cash intensive. And when they made that switch, that's when I went after my CEO job and became CEO of a Kleiner Perkins um, invested company called at the time Zaplet, which became MetricStream. And MetricStream, which was a very broken company at the time, um, but over the course of you know 15 years, turns it around, turns it into a market leader. It's still out there today with customers all over the world and well over a thousand employees. Oh, wow! So I love it. Talk to me about how 
when you, now all of a sudden you get the opportunity to become a CEO, but you've seen so many CEOs that have gone through these transitions and some even failed. Where did you get that courageousness? Where did you get that ambition to say that, listen, I can be different? Was it just, did you, did you feel like you were that comfortable learning from their mistakes or was it just like, no, it's my time and I'll never know if I could do it if I don't jump in and start swimming? You know, it's, I think it's two things. One, it was always my goal. Right. I mean, I was taking these other jobs to learn so I could do a better job and improve my odds that when I became CEO, that I could be had a better chance of being successful. So when you say, was it my time? I did decide it was my time. It's like, all right, I've had the experiences. Now, frankly, timing was terrible. I'm looking for a CEO job after the bubble had burst in Silicon Valley, which means there are literally hundreds of companies that are now out of business, which means there's hundreds of experienced CEOs looking for jobs and you got me i'm not an experienced right. ceo i'm not from silicon valley at the time i'm not even living here right i'm commuting and i don't look like a silicon valley ceo right, right. so it's not like i had a whole lot going for me here which is why when i was looking at opportunities i knew i wasn't gonna get an a play an a play is a company that the investors believe will be successful Right. So I figured I'm going to go get a fixer upper problem child, because typically when companies and this is true, large or small, but when companies are facing challenges, they tend to be more open to bringing on people who are different um, because they're looking for a new approach, a new way right, to address. So at any rate, and I figured, heck, I've fixed a whole bunch of things in my career. So let me do that now. I wasn't going to walk into just any opportunity. You know, you have to do your diligence again, improve your odds for success. So before I took the job, for instance, at, at Zaplet, I had a friend of mine come and do the technical due diligence. Let me just make sure the software actually works, right? Do I have something to work with? Because I'm not a tech person. So use, get help, right? Get help, use people to do that. Um, I got a top tier firm because I figured, all right, they had more credibility, right? And potentially provide more help. I mean, there are a number of things I looked at to also improve the odds of a tough situation. Uh, but at the end of the day, yes, it's like put up or shut up. I wanted to be CEO. I now have my chance. So, all right, let's see what I can do. And so much of it is not just me. It's the team that you build around you. Right. And so that was the key. The key was just getting great people around you. So now you become a CEO. Talk to me about what did you did you turn to your old CEOs or your old mentors? Like, how did you navigate that path? And the reason why I ask this is because I think it's relevant for a lot of people right now. A lot of people are starting up their own business and maybe they're not in Silicon Valley, but maybe they're right outside of Austin, Texas, right? And, and they're just getting in the online world and they're trying to figure out, okay, well, who do I turn to? And maybe it just goes back to the point that you said, find a mentor, somebody who's already done what you've tried to do. But for you on your path and your journey, what did that look like? Who did you, was it turned into Reed Hastings or what did that look yeah, like? Yeah, so I will tell you, first of all, it's not mentor, right? Not mentor. You want as many views and perspectives as you can get. It's mentors, right? And again, it doesn't have to be formal. So yes, I turned to, my old bosses turned to Ben Horowitz. Right, I turned to board members. I got to know Bill Campbell was on the board at LoudCloud, um, and he was somebody who who supported me. I reached out to people at IBM, right, that I'd interacted with. I mean, and then I used other people's networks. So when I needed specific kinds of help, like I'm trying to figure out how I can pivot, you know, Zaplet into something that people want, because obviously what Zaplet was doing, customers didn't want. So I needed to find a new problem right. to solve. Well, okay, the best way I know to go find problems is to talk to the smartest people I know and get their ideas, right? And so literally it was, I'd meet with people and ask them for their thoughts. And then when they gave me their thoughts, I'd say, and who do you know who might also have some interesting perspectives for me that you might be able to introduce me to, right? I mean, I, so I worked other people's networks and that's how I came up with the idea of moving Metricstream into the governance risk and compliance space. It came from Roger McNamee, who I didn't know prior to going through this process, but he got introduced to me by somebody that I didn't, right? That I did know. So don't think of it as one mentor. You want as much and as different perspectives as you can get so that you can take all that information to make your best, right? Your best decision. 
Phenomenal, phenomenal. One question, this is a little bit off the cuff, but I'm just very, very curious. Out of all of the mentors that you've had and all the relationships that you've built, Silicon Valley and across the country, has there been one person that has just blown you away? Like, is there one yeah. person that you've just thought like, wow? Yeah, the late Bill Campbell. Um, Bill, Bill Campbell, and by the way, there's a book written about him called The Trillion Dollar Coach, because a lot of people don't know Bill Campbell outside of Silicon Valley, um, because he's, he's always very humble. Uh, but Bill was, you know, the coach to Steve Jobs. He was the coach to Larry and Larry and Sergey, right, at Google. He was the coach to, so he's the yeah. coach to CEOs who built literally trillion dollar value kinds of companies. Um, and he blew me away because his approach was so caring. You know, Bill cared. Um, and he was very much focused always on the people. And he was all about diversity before it ever became cool. Um, so anyway, I, Bill Campbell to me was was the one you know his perspectives were just right on he never really told you what to do he would tell you stories right and he'd give you perspectives and he do i mean he so there are a lot of people out there that'll say oh do this do this do this but all that does is to give you the fish you know if, to really grow you need to learn how to fish and the right, best way to right. do that is for you to actually make the decisions. Don't, that's why I say you need multiple people. If you only have one, what'll happen is you'll tend to listen to that one and just go do, 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 do. And now it's, you're basically just channeling them versus creating your own. Mm. But and so I think for a lot of people, they struggle with that, though, you know, because you're hearing multiple perspectives. Now you don't necessarily know what to act on because everybody took a different path. That, and so how do and you that's that's but that's where the learning is. So every, so you're getting different mm. perspectives. OK, now analyze it. Right. Dig in. Do play the, you know, play the um, game theory. All right. So if I do X. What's likely to happen? If I do Y, what's likely to happen? What are the risks for each of them? And therefore, what's the right risk reward option right in front of me? It's that whole process that allows you to build for yourself, right? Better instincts over time, better approaches over time because you go through that work. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely, definitely agree. I love getting different perspectives. And I hope that someone else hears that now. And, uh, and they say, you know what, I can lean it because it really just comes down to leaning in on your own intuition, believing in yourself, believing that there's not one right way to do anything. We see tons of different companies and leaders and everybody takes a different approach. Right. And in the beginning, they'll ask you why you're doing it. But in the end, if you stay true to you, they'll ask you how you did it. Right, which is an example of what we're doing right now. Um, so hopefully somebody takes heed to that and, and they can lean in on their own intuition a little bit more. But talk to me about what's what's the now and what's next, right? You've always been somebody who has a goal, a vision, a dream. What's now and what's next for Shelly? Sure. Well, I call this whole phase of my career phase two. You know, phase one was always on 24 by 7, right? Focused on driving things for somebody else. Now, phase two is all about impact and inspiration. So mm -hmm. if I'm not inspiring somebody or impacting somebody or something, then I'm just not going to do it right now <laughs> because that's what I'm all about. It really irritates me, Casanova, how many people, but especially women and people of color, don't get the opportunity to just contribute to you know, 50, 60% of their capabilities. That's crazy. You know, I want more people to achieve their aspirations, to be able to contribute to their full capability and capacity. And are there a lot of systemic issues out there that make it hard and therefore prevent it? The answer is yes, which is why so many people don't, right, get that opportunity. But even with those things out there, there are steps that you can take and there are things that you can do to try to improve your odds, to at least be able to move farther, right, towards that overall goal and objective. And that's what I want for more people. I want to give them some tools, give them some inspiration. That's why I wrote the book. The book is chocked full of literally, how do you adopt mentors, right? It's taught, it's, it's really clear on, hey, how do you go ask for the race? How do you negotiate these things? What do you, and I do it not by saying, do this, do this, do this, but I took a chapter out of Bill Campbell's, you know, 
influence on me. I did it all through stories. It's just a whole series of stories. Um, And I'm hoping that through those stories, people are actually getting real takeaways um, that they can use tomorrow to actually help them move further towards their overall goals and objectives. Absolutely. That phenomenal answer. And and I hope that we can all, you know, in some way contribute to your face too, by letting you know how valuable that you've been with all of the wisdom and the knowledge that you've shared. The last question um, that I have for you is, I always used to ask the question when I first started early on, if there was one thing that anyone could go back and they would change. But I always got the answer that people said that they would never change anything, which I always say, listen, we would always change. We could, we would all change something, right? I understand that it's made us who we are stronger, but we go back. Like for me, going back, I would change losing my mom, right? There's nothing I could do about it now. I've gained an angel, but I would change losing my mom. But now I've learned to phrase it in a different way. If there is one thing that you wish that you would have implemented sooner, to accelerate your path on your journey of your dream to where you are today, what would that one thing be? Um, it would have been to let people know what I actually do. You know, one of the things that I tell people now is make sure people know what you do. Because here's the truth. When you work in a business, an organization, unless it's your own thing, right? Everybody's busy. And so they don't actually know what you do. And what happens is when we interact with the world, we still don't tell people what we do. We give them titles, right? Oh, hi, how are you? What do you do? Oh, you know, I'm head of operations for blah, blah, blah company. Do they know what I do? Nope. Do they know my skills? Nope, right? They know a title. And as much as we compete for titles, titles are actually pretty meaningless because the roles that that represent that title change from company to company, even within companies, right? Two titles can have completely different roles and responsibilities. Now, why is it important for people to know what you do? If they don't know what you actually do, they don't know your skills. They don't know your experience. And if they hear about opportunities, they won't think of you, all right? So when you get the opportunity, which, oh, by the way, we get all the time, oh, what do you do? Don't say you're the director of operations. No, what you do is you can say, oh, I'm the director of operations. I'm responsible for all of our strategic customers in the Midwestern region for blah, 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 blah. 30 seconds, no more. Speak more, now you're kind of bragging and people get bored. 30 seconds. Because later on, that person may hear of another company. You know what? And we're looking for somebody who has management experience, has done things with strategic clients, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, just talk to Casanova. He does that. Right? If all you said was your head of operations, nobody thinks about you. All right? Mm. And it's and that's not just outside of companies, that's even within companies. Roles come up all the time. Right? So just make sure that people know what you do. Yeah, phenomenal. And what what I got out of that was just letting making sure that people know what problem that you solve, right? In the simplest form, what problem do you solve? Mm-hmm. Because everybody has a problem in this world, whether it's big or small, everybody has some type of a frustration or even better yet, an inconvenience. In any way that you can make things more convenient for people, if they will think of you. And so that's phenomenal advice. And as I, and I feel like I do a pretty good job of letting people know, but it has me second. I'm like, do I really let people know in the most layman terms what I do? And so from now on, as I continue to have these conversations, I'll make sure I let people know, more importantly, what problem do I solve? What do I try to solve? What do I try to, you know? And, and I think that you've done that today phenomenally. Um, so we are just wrapping up now. I want to be the first one, if no one else has told you today, to say thank you and I appreciate you. We'll make sure that we put all of the links to the show notes, especially to your book, but also um, how if anybody wants to stay directly connected with you, tell us where can they find you at? They can find me in a number of places. I'm very active on, on social media, LinkedIn. It's a great place to reach out to me. I absolutely respond. And then uh, Shelly.com, and that's Shelly with a Y-E, S-H-E-L-L-Y-E.com. Got it. Well, we'll definitely put those all in the show notes. And um, again, this is a phenomenal conversation. I've learned so much today, and it's definitely empowered me to be able to go out and let people know just a little bit better, I would say, what problem that I solve. 
Um, but remember, Dream Nation, just as she said, you have to take action. You have to go out there and be willing to execute because that dream that you have, and we all have a dream, without execution, that dream is only merely a fantasy. Absolutely. That's all for this one. Absolutely. I'll catch you on the next Great. one. Great. Sorry about that. I was just going to say absolutely. And I just encourage everybody to own your ambition. Own your ambition. And if you want to know how to do it, check out Unapologetically Ambitious. It's okay to be ambitious. I love it. I love it. Well, that's all for this one, Dream Nation. Again, follow Shelly. Reach out to her, especially uh, if you're looking to become more courageous and you're looking to uh, figure out how you can go to your next level. I believe that Shelly is going to be a phenomenal mentor for anyone that's willing to take action and execute on what they say that they want. So for this one, we'll catch you on the next one. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you to myself and the team is just by heading over to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating. That's what iTunes loves to see. That's how we get out there even more. And I would definitely, definitely be grateful for it. I know the team would as well. Do me a favor and head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode, as well as more exclusive content. And you'll also be able to sign up to our email list where we have more exclusive content. And we always love to hear the feedback from you all because you're our tribe. So remember, in the dream we trust, we'll see you on the flip side. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.